find something of value. Well, higher education community and intellectualization. How central this humanity is. Welcome to the Academic Citizen. I'm your host, Mahita Ikani. Well, here we are. As a podcast team, we have traveled a journey in this year of 2022. We started with our comeback earlier in the year, and here we are at our eighth episode, which will be our last one for this season. We've learned so much, and it feels like we've come a long way. In the last episode, Dr. Nosipom Gomezulu as our guide, we explored the possibilities of failure as a constructive force in academic life and even in our research processes. In this episode, in the spirit of origins, roots and destinations as we close off our season, we think about journeys. During the COVID-19 pandemic, the entire world effectively went into lockdown and we were all told to stay at home. Some of us did, some of us didn't, most of us tried. We all still have a lot of processing to do about the emotional fallout of feeling stuck and being locked in and locked down. It was really something, wasn't it, that we all just stopped moving around our cities, countries, the whole world for several months. Of course, we all got cabin fever, relegated as we were to our homes and apartments, no matter how grand or humble our spaces. We all wanted to get out and get moving again, to go places. Perhaps movement, the going, the coming, the coming, the going, is inherent to our very humanness. There's something about traveling that makes time at home all the sweeter, and of course something about being stuck at home that makes a person really want to wander. Like all living creatures, we locomote, we walk, we run, we ride, we move. For all creatures, moving is vital to life, and I think this is certainly true to a significant degree for us humans too, although we are perhaps more sedentary than ever in terms of our everyday lives. We've invented ever more sophisticated and fast ways to get from one part of the world to another. When I think of journeys, I think of all those places that I've been privileged enough to visit, the short holidays I've managed to tack on to conference trips, the places that I've loved so much as to go to great lengths to figure out how to go back again, the long drives with my partner and our dog listening to podcasts and music. Those kinds of travel are exciting or thrilling, but sometimes travel can also be stressful and tiring. The red-eye flights, the early mornings to get to work commitments, the late-night taxi rides home, wondering whether that meeting could have been an email or a Zoom call. Did I have to fly there or drive here? burning fossil fuels just to shake someone's hand? I've had to travel a lot this year for both personal and work reasons. And I'm actually really ashamed of my carbon footprint, this year especially. I know that I need to face a big decision soon about whether to stop flying, or at the very least to fly less as one small contribution to solving the climate crisis. I'm not sure if I can do it. I'm not sure if I can not fly at all. But we'd certainly need to be having conversations about that as academics. And luckily, our second guest today thinks with me on this problem that I'm sure many other academics are also facing. Alongside this, knowing that I have to do something, no matter how small, to work with others to lower our carbon emissions, I still have a list of places I want to go, all of which require flying. It's a list of hope. 
there's one specific journey that I'm yearning to make and that I can't, but it's a little too painful to speak about at this moment in my life. I hope that before I die, I'll get the opportunity to be in that place, to smell its air and hear its sounds and practice my childish grasp of its language, taste its food and be embraced by the culture that runs in my DNA. But I can't. The journey is impossible. And there's a pain embedded into the impossibility of that journey. But here I am anyway, making that wish, dreaming of flying, hoping to go, even though I'm aware that the climate crisis might mean that we can't fly as much as we used to, or at all in the future. As well as journeys of hope and pleasure, there are tragically too many forced journeys that people have to take out of necessity and fear. There are too many people in the world who do not need to imagine what it must be like to flee from terror, war, persecution, to have to run away on foot with only what they can carry, to travel on crowded boats across dangerous waters or to swim across crocodile-infested rivers in search of safety. Here in South Africa, we do not welcome our neighbours who need us, even though they welcomed so many exiles during the struggle. We demand papers and documents. We deny health care. We label people as illegal. There is so much pain as well as pleasure in the journeys that we human beings take. But there's also knowledge. There's knowledge in journeys, of journeys, about journeys. There is that cliche about life being a journey rather than a destination. But what is a journey without a destination? Is it just movement? Do we need to know where we are going and why to call it a journey? Or do we simply need to know where we're coming from? What forms of knowledge can we create through journeying? Come with me as I speak to three researchers about three ways of knowing with and through movement, three perspectives on exploring origins and destinations, and three perspectives on the politics of coming and going. First, we hear from a social historian on the political power of walking and walking as a methodology for granted theory. Second, we listen to a climate scholar about the politics of flying, especially for academics and activists. And finally, we enter the realm of a special breed of wild cat that is increasingly moving into and out of urban peripheral space. So hello, my name is Harmony Sigenporia, and I'm an associate professor of culture and communication at a tiny little postgrad campus in Gujarat called Maika. I'm also a musician, and I'm someone who's thought about and fought with, but really mostly thought about the imp we call Gandhi for well over a decade now. He refuses to leave me be. It's lovely to have you on our show, and we're excited Thank to you. talk to you. So you have very recently released a wonderful looking book called Walking from Dandy. The frame of this, of course, is, as you know, the Dandy March. And this was one of the apogees of Gandhi's political career. It's a long three and a half week journey on foot and by road when he walks from Ahmedabad to Dandy. I mean, it's wonderful as a South African sitting in South Africa to be talking to an Indian colleague sitting in India, because we do actually share a history a little bit with this very famous figure. 
of Mahatma mm-hmm. Gandhi. Let's start there. So not everyone will necessarily, even though you tell us that this march was one of the apogees of Gandhi's political career, can you fill us in for those who are not as clued up? What was the Dandi March? And Gladly. what drew you to it as a kind of object of study as a social historian? That's a wonderful place to start, really. But I have to say that there is a South African connection even to Dandi. You know, of course, walking as political communication or walking as method within the Gandhian schema really comes into the shape that he's going to hone it for the rest of his life while he's in South Africa. What we today call the Great March, one of the last mass movements that he led in South Africa before he came back to India, was actually the mobilization of over 2,200 people who quite simply walked. The Great March lasted barely a week, under a week, but it was through that kind of mobilization and what it sought to achieve that it became clear to him that the method had a lot of power and it could then be refined to become what it did in the Indian context, which is, I think, lessons learned from South Africa taught Gandhi that for a march of this scale to attract and keep attention, it would have to be longer than the Great March, which lasted all of five days and was intended to fill up your jails, let's be clear. But on the other hand, you know, by the time we get to India, by the time we get to the Dandi March, suddenly what you have is a three and a half week beast, which is time enough for the press to pick it up, to start thinking about what's going on here. And not so long that it's going to disappear from the front pages and find itself, you know, on page seven with a three line write up talking about where the massive phalanx is on a given day. A lot goes back to South Africa, good, bad and ugly. I remember that I was incredibly tortured the first time that I came and saw what's left of Phoenix, the settlement in South Africa. The first time I was there, I'm used to seeing a Gandhi figure uh, rot in light. And what the sense that I got of him in South Africa was that this was very much a work in progress, which he remained for the rest of his life. But it is definitely the source domain, if you like, for a lot of the ideas that are going to achieve fruition over the course of the rest of his life. So very quickly, for people who may not be familiar with the Dandi March part, and this isn't just me, a whole bunch of historians of the Gandhi figure are of the opinion that the Dandi March was a moment of sheer light. And that it illuminated what was an extremely important moment in the Indian nationalist movement. And of course, in terms of immediate results, if you will, the march didn't achieve everything that it set out to. And yet the way that Gandhi reflected on it and the way that he kept going back to this method time and again for the remaining two decades of his life suggests that there was something in it that he thought really worked for him, if you like. So the march itself began in March 1930. You had a bunch of 80 people in addition to Gandhi each hand chosen by him to walk from Ahmedabad, which was the site of his Satyagra ashram, the Sabarmati ashram, the site where he stayed put longest outside of South Africa, just for the benefit of anyone who might not have as clear an image of his time in India. From 1930 onwards, it was exclusively movement for Gandhi. He never stayed put anywhere else for as long as he had in Ahmedabad. 
And we'll get into why, because the march was largely responsible for this. So this hand-chosen little brigade, if you like, of 80 are walking from Ahmedabad to Dandi, which is a distance of just under 400 kilometers. And they do it by stopping. They walk for a few hours in the morning. They walk again just before sunset. And they touch and cover upwards of 50 villages. And they're walking to this little coastal hamlet which has a population of just a few hundred people. It doesn't have enough fresh water supplies or food to sustain the kinds of numbers that are going to appear by the end of the march. But why they're doing it is because they want to protest what is, to Gandhi's mind, one of the most unjust taxes levied by the British Indian government, which was the the salt tax. Not only was there a tax on the product, if you like. There was also a massive inhibition on the production of salt by any source, not selling it directly or retailing it directly to government. So they had a monopoly. The British Indian government had a monopoly on the entire process. And that included some really interesting, I think, acrobatic maneuvers proposed on the part of government to disrupt the traditional sale in salt that used to be a facet of communities who lived across the length and breadth of India from the coast all the way to inland communities as you moved from west to east. And one of the moves that the government had proposed in order to curtail this trade was the creation of a giant wall, which would run from present-day Quetta in Pakistan all the way through to Orissa on the east coast of India. Now, had it been completed, this would have been several times the size of what is known as, you know, the Great Wall of China. Mm-hmm. And they realized it would bankrupt them, which is why the government decided quickly that this wasn't a good mm-hmm. idea. And they replaced it with something known as the Great Indian Hedge, which is upwards of 600 meters thick. It is a ginormous natural barrier, which precludes the possibility of salt that's been manufactured on the coast from making its way inland. And it effectively was another way for government to Tamp down on the movement of the tribes, the nomadic tribes, who both produced and traded in salt. Mm. You can't tax people if you don't know where to find them. So I suppose this was a handy little way of achieving mm. that end. But to Gandhi's mind, because salt is an item that absolutely every creature, animate creature on this planet requires in some way, shape or form, it came to be for him a symbol or a signifier, if you like, able to bring on board a wide, wide number of people who otherwise would have, owing to the nature of the schisms that rent Indian society, uh, you know, schisms along the lines of caste, gender, religion, etc. This was a symbol around which large numbers of people could gather because absolutely everyone needed it, regardless of you know what you identified in terms of your religion or gender or caste, as I mentioned. This was something that applied to all people equally, which is why he was looking for something that would cut across the many, 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 many schismatic divides mm. that otherwise inform you know the texture of Indian society, if you like. It's a fascinating context that you're offering us. And what I think really stands out is that for Gandhi, the practice of walking, the march, and not just any march, not just, you know, from one part of the city to another, but across mm-hmm. hundreds of kilometers was a, a tool of protest and a political tool. And I wonder if Absolutely. you could say a little bit more about the kind of epicness of the walk and how it then mm-hmm. functioned as a protest instrument. 
Absolutely. I love that you pick up on that. So that's exactly what marching is within a Gandhian schema. But before before I can talk about the march sum, and I will, I think it's also important to dwell for a moment on what walking meant to Gandhi. Mm. Because I think that, you know, this is somebody who comes to walking early from his time as a young student in a foreign land, you know, in the heart of empire. He's barely 18 when he goes to England to step for his law degree. And while he's there, he realizes quite quickly for a few months, you know, he tries to play the English gentleman. He has lessons on violin playing and ballroom dancing, none of which cohere with anything we know of this figure today. But he gave it a whack, you know, for a couple of months before realizing that that was not what he was there to do. And he quickly cut back on anything that wasn't essential. And part of what he cut back on was spending money on modes of transport, omnibuses, for example. He wasn't taking those at all. Early into his stay there, he became a very frugal foreign student who understood the precarity of his position in terms of finances. He knew that his family had, you know, indebted themselves in order to raise the funds to allow him to come and do this. And so what he did was he started walking. So initially, it's born out of necessity, you know, he's cost cutting and so on and so forth. But he realizes quite quickly that this is a mode of transport that allows him to simultaneously see and take in visions of the city which wouldn't have been accessible to him otherwise. And even as he was the spectator, remember that as a brown body at the heart of empire in the 1880s, he's also a spectacle. And it becomes really, I think this binary really plays itself out for him in interesting ways. And he realizes the power of how walking grounds you in a way that no other mode of transportation Mm. can. And it allows you a connection with land, people, geography, and history in ways that it's impossible for us to manufacture with any other mode of transport. And I think that that is something that he carries with him into South Africa because that's where he's going to go next. From his time in England, you know, where he's acquired walking as both, you know, a mode of meditative practice as well as something that came from necessity, as I said, it develops into its own really during his time in South Africa, where he's walking sometimes upwards of 50 miles a day, because all his settlements in South Africa, both of them, the one in Johannesburg and the one in Durban, were far on the outskirts of the cities proper. And and that's how he chose to engage with these megapolises. Mm. I suppose they weren't megapolises, but you know mm. what I mean, they, these urban imaginations. Mm. He was always on the periphery of them, except when he had to work. So you walked into the city with a purpose and that purpose being achieved, you walked back because you mm. saw yourself as somebody who already by then, you know, he's read his Ruskin, he's read his Tolstoy, and he's beginning to articulate massive unease with modernity with a capital M and the visions of it that achieve some kind of fruition, I suppose, in the urban acme that is these centers that we're looking Mm. at and that he's engaging with on a routine Mm. basis. So that's something that I think South Africa gives him. But now when you kind of extrapolate from there and you move from walking as a solitary activity, which affords him, obviously, Obviously, all of this and you multiply it into the sheer first, the visual spectacle of a march on the move 
And in South Africa, as I said, with the Great March, you know, which happens in 1913, this is 2,200 bodies that are on the move. They move purposively. They move more or less in tandem. Now, of course, this is a line that lasts kilometers. Mm. It is a vision. And I think the power of the march as a political tool becomes really obvious when you leverage the optics of protest that this mode will afford him. And that, I think, is something that they're still tinkering with. Of course, the march in South Africa is never going to be quite the same beast as any march in India, because here the expectation of people joining in is necessarily going to be higher than it would have been or could have been anywhere else in the world. Which is why, like I said, despite the fact that only 80 people were chosen to actually complete the route from Ahmedabad to Dandi, it turned out that there were upwards of anywhere between 60,000 and 90,000 people who were actually a part of the larger movement. But Gandhi made it very clear to them that they could only walk from the limits of their own village or town or city up until they got to the next, so as to not be a burden on the resources that each of these places would have to offer up anybody who was a part of this journey. So there was a very delicate balancing, if you like, of socioeconomic concerns also informing how many people could walk, where they could go, how many people could meaningfully be held in mm. some of these extremely small settlements that they were walking through en route. And of course, the route itself became a political beast, right? Mm. Because the design of it was vital, especially in the context of Dandi, because of course, Gujarat didn't exist as Gujarat back then. It was a part of the Bombay presidency. And what that means is that there were British-held territories and then there were what was known as the princely states, some of whom were extremely hesitant to let a figure, a rabble-rouser, if you like, <laughs> like Gandhi and his people walk through their territories. So he couldn't have been sure what the reception do this in those areas would have been. And the aim of this march was to get village headmen, for example, to give up working with government, you know, to resign en masse, for people to be prepared that when the call would go out from Dandi, they would each start manufacturing their own salt mm -hmm. and selling it. There were moments of immense joy that marked the aftermath of this very difficult, grueling. He keeps talking about this journey as a pilgrimage, which we can get into if you like also. So apart from a very obvious, visible, communicative protest tool, by which I mean a protest tool which is able to communicate very, very loudly and clearly, mm -hmm. what it also is couched as when you read Gandhi talk about it after the fact is that this is a mission that to his mind, is a pilgrimage. It is suffused with a moral charge because the tax that they are protesting is amoral or immoral and unjust. So they accrue to themselves the kind of moral high ground, if you like, that comes from this type of positioning. And I think it becomes impossible for anyone to sustain the myth that the British Raj in India was beneficent or was mm. in any way a benign being which was charged with the well-being of India. That was a truth claim it was impossible for anyone to make mm. on the other side of the march and the movement, more importantly, which follows it, because there was violent, violent opposition to these bodies protesting mm. this law on the other side of the march. And the British government came down like a ton of bricks. Many bodies were broken. Arms mm. were dislocated. Head fractures were accrued by satyagrahis, mm. you know, who were protesting this tax mm. when they raided salt works on the other side of mm. the march. 
a fascinating episode in the history of resistance to British colonialism. And it's just wonderful to hear you talk with so much knowledge about this moment in history. But enough about Gandhi for now. We want to hear about Harmony Siganporia's walk. So tell us how you came to walking as a research methodology for your project. So you made the decision to reverse the route to walk from mm-hmm. Dandi back to Ahmedabad. So mm-hmm. tell us about how you came to choose to do that reversal. I think it's a linked question really is what then does walking allow you as a researcher, as a critical thinker, as a theorist to do that other modes of moving do not allow you to do? Love it. Before we put Gandhi away (laughs) for a couple of minutes, let me tell you why it had to be walking. Mm. Clearly, within the Gandhian schema, the walk meant many, many different things. Gandhi walked more than any human being in recorded history. (laughs) From the time of his return to India, he walked the land from end to end, north to south, east to west, more than anyone on record has. Mm. And for him, this was a means of you know, both setting into place a certain kind of what he called the Sarvaday worker, somebody who was grounded or rooted in community, who went as far as their feet could carry them. And, you know, if that was 20 kilometers, then that was the scope of your working life. Those 20 kilometers were what he would call your karma bhumi or your scope or universe of action. But why it had to be walking is interesting. So in 1934, four years after Dandi, he's walking in Orissa, completely different part of the country, right? This is along the East Coast. And this walk, this march that he does there is called the Harijan Yatra. And it is to contest the practice of untouchability, which is such a heinous part of the social fabric here, if you will. And on the Harijan Yatra, the organizers in Orisha are trying very hard to usher Gandhi into a car. And they're trying to explain to him how much more ground he could cover, how many more people he'd be able to address directly if he would only give up his insistence on walking. Because, of course, by then he's also 65 years old, lest we forget, you know, and this is this is a body that has walked thousands of kilometers a year, every single year from the 1880s onwards. So, you know, do the math. It's a staggering number. And he refuses to get into a car. He refuses to get into a train and not for any of the other reasons that one might expect, because, of course, he has a philosophical problem with those modes of transport, which is a very different kind of conversation, which I'm happy to have at another time. My own positions of intense privilege, my location in an ivory tower we call academia, the fact that I speak the way I do, I've had access to the education I've had, and all of this doesn't let me engage with the lived reality of most of Gujarat and Gujaratis, people who call Gujarat home today. And the only way I could think of to rectify that was to walk alongside them a while, to walk alongside, you know, the people who inhabit this route today and to ask them just to to listen, to use simple projective techniques, you know, ask them to show me instead of telling me what Vikas meant to them. Simple little things like this. Part of the reason why I had to flip the route to do it at the end of one year of thinking I was going to walk from Ahmedabad to Dandi was quite simply this. I realized that Ahmedabad is the acme of the urban vision that Vikas purports to offer us. Dandi is very, very, very clearly Gujarat's past. 
Mm. I couldn't be walking into the past if I equally wanted this to be a story of our present. If I had to walk into the present that presages our future, I had to flip the route. I mean, it happened just a month before we actually hit the road. Mm. 